empower yourself to say, well, I'm going to go figure out how to afford that. I'm going to go get the money. I'm going to figure out how to have that in my life. If you're a person who's looking to have more purpose in your life, if you're saying to yourself, I don't want to just go to work, I want to do my life's work. If you want to be baking or sculpting or dancing or songwriting or screenwriting or painting or doing that thing that you just always wanted to do but you haven't figured out quite how to make a living full-time doing it, this is the show. This is the show, Don't Keep Your Day Job. How do you figure out how to take your passion and turn it into a profit? Life is too short not to wake up every day excited. You've got something that you've got to share with the world. I'm positive. That's why you're here. We're here to have this conversation week after week. We're interviewing people who have done it. We're talking about the strategies. The show will not just give you inspiration, but some real life tools that you can start to take some real action week after week so that you can not just go to work and build someone else's dream. You can do the thing that you've always truly wanted to do. Make yourself the happiest version of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so happy that you're here. 2018, this is going to be your year. Thanks to Latote for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Go to latote.com and enter promo code DREAMJOB at checkout to get 50% off your first month. From there, you're going to get your completely customized tote within days. Wear it all, and when you're done, return the rest in the mail. They'll start prepping your next tote immediately. That's latote.com and promo code DREAMJOB. Thanks to Third Love for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Go to thirdlove.com slash dreamjob now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash dreamjob. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. Um, today is President's Day. Some of you may be off today. Some of you might be working. Some of you might be living in another country and you might not have President's Day off. Wherever you are, I hope that you are having a great day. And I wanted to just say something about that because recently I told some of you that I moved into a new home and it's absolutely beautiful. I wake up and I can see the sun rising over the mountains and I see the sparkly lights at night um, when I'm going to sleep. It's a beautiful place to live. I love my neighborhood. My kids are delicious and um, my husband was so sweet and surprised me for Valentine's Day with balloons and flowers and you know, why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because even when I'm having an amazing moment or just a really good day, it's incredible how, sure enough, some stressful or annoying or difficult thought will just kind of find its way into my mind. And then this sort of like loop starts to play and I start to think about something and my mind just starts to chew on this thing, this thing that's stressful that I stop and I say, why is this here? Like I'm, I'm happy or I'm having a, a wonderful walk or I just had an amazing conversation and I love my podcast. So why am I taking a shower and then having this thought about this one person who's been bothering me? Isn't that amazing? And it feels so frustrating. It's like, why should my whole moment, my whole afternoon be sort of like sabotaged? And so here's what I wanted to say about it. The other day I decided, you know what? I used to do a lot of meditating and I haven't made the time for it as much as I used to. And I was like, you know what? I need it now more than ever. I have three kids. I'm running three businesses. I have so much on my plate. I really need to go back and make the time. So the other day I said, I'm going to, I'm going to take a second and I'm actually going to stop and I'm going to meditate. And my friend at that very moment sends me a text and she said, oh, I was thinking about you. I just did this meditation. I thought you might want to hear it. So I clicked on it. It was this whole like five or six minutes on self-compassion. And what the woman said, which was so helpful, she said that everybody is struggling with this thing, which is that your thoughts they lead to suffering sometimes and that you're not alone if that's happening, that that's part of the human experience is that we have this suffering, this, this thing that because your mind, your mind thinks thoughts, that's just what it does. And so like the pain in life might be something that we can't get around because sometimes in life there is pain, but the suffering part is avoidable because we don't have to just allow that to be habitual. And so what we can do is try to turn our awareness on our thoughts and try to be awake as opposed to when you're just like sleepwalking through your day and you're just 
letting those thoughts sort of run rampant. Imagine if you had like a speaker put up to your ear that's just really, you know, driving home things that are so uncomfortable to hear, like self-critical thoughts or judgments. That's what's happening often. And so just noticing that that's what's going on can be really helpful because you can just say, oh, that's fascinating. Like I was doing that again. And now I'm going to try to just direct my attention to something else. And that can just really help. Also, be gentle with yourself. Like I hope that you just give yourself more compassion. And maybe as you as you notice that this is just sort of part of the human condition, you can sort of anticipate it and you can have more awareness around it and maybe you can just be kinder to yourself. But you're not alone. This is something that everyone's sort of dealing with and everyone picks their own flavor of suffering. It's sort of the great unifier, you know, for all of us is that people want to look like everything's perfect and everything's fine on Facebook and Instagram, but everyone's got these thoughts that sort of take over sometimes and we're all in this together and let's just try to bring more awareness to it, more compassion to ourselves and just know that you're not alone and I hope that that will help you have a better day. Thanks to Latote for supporting our podcast. Latote is a rental clothing subscription service that has great value and it's super easy to use. You can rent up to $300 worth of clothing from designer brands like BCBG, Max Azaria, Nike, Rebecca Minkoff for as low as $59 a month. You can get a box of fashion delivered right to your door and always have something new to wear. Here's what I love about Latote. They send you stuff every month that comes in a box and they customize it depending on what your preferences are and what you like, what you don't like. And then it's so easy. Like if you like one of the things after you've worn it for a little bit, you could keep it. If you don't like it, you could just return it and then they'll send you new stuff. So basically you could have a brand new wardrobe every single month for $59 a month. You just keep getting new awesome stuff to just try on. And for me, I want to try new things and sometimes I don't have the time and sometimes I'm, I'm in the store and I'm shopping and I'm looking at a couple items and I'm not sure if I want to make the commitment and buy something. So this gives me the time to just like play, try things on. Um, and then if I like it, I keep it. If not, I just send it back and there's already like a prepaid shipping label and everything super smooth. If you want to try them out, go to latote.com. That's L-E-T-O-T-E.com to get started and enter promo code dreamjob at checkout to get 50% off your first month. From there, you're going to get your completely customized tote within days. You wear it all. And when you're done, you return the rest in the mail. They'll start prepping your next tote immediately. Again, that's latote.com and enter your code dreamjob. That's all one word, dreamjob, and always have something new to wear. Thanks to Third Love for supporting our podcast. When it comes to bra shopping, it's all about finding the right fit for you. And there's only one lingerie brand that offers bra sizes in double A through G and half cup sizes. It's Third Love. Third Love uses thousands of real women's measurements and super smoothing memory foam to create bras that fit better and feel great. Most old school bra brands only carry 15 sizes, but Third Love has 60 sizes, including half cups. You never heard of half cup sizes? Well, that's because no one else does it. So what I love about this is I went online and I chose like the t-shirt bra. I just thought it looked like really comfortable and it comes to my door and I don't have to like go in the store and like spend time trying on bras. Like who wants to spend an hour doing this? You know, and it's like, it comes to my door. It's super comfortable. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order to find the bra you've been waiting for. All you have to do is answer a few simple questions from Third Love's Fit Finder quiz. It just takes like 60 seconds and you can do it all from the comfort of your home. So you never have to have that awkward fitting room experience ever again. Try a third love bra. It's so comfortable. You might forget you're wearing it. And if you don't agree, returns and exchanges are always easy and free. So this year, make the change that will change the way you think about bras. Go to thirdlove.com slash dreamjob now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash dreamjob, thirdlove.com slash dreamjob. So I just want to remind you that we love making the show and there's a team of awesome people who help make this show happen. And when you guys support our sponsors, that's an incredible way to keep this whole team um, running and doing what they're doing. So enjoy these offers from the sponsors. It's win-win. You support them. They support us. And if you also want to do something to support us, you can do things that cost no money, like just telling your friends about the show, you know, sharing it, putting it up on Instagram or on Facebook. And you can also leave us an iTunes review that really 
helps us a lot. It helps um, in the iTunes algorithm. The way it works is the more reviews you have, the more exposure and the more the show sort of climbs up the chart. So make sure you're subscribed to the show and then tell your friends about it and leave us a review. It means the world to me. And um, I can't think of anything better than getting to do this. It's been such a joy. I love spending time talking to the listeners. I love getting your DMs on Instagram. If you want me, by the way, to follow you back on Instagram, just follow me at kathy.heller, C-A-T-H-Y dot H-E-L-L-E-R. And I'll be happy to chat with you on DM or follow you back and just support you as you're going through your journey. Our guest today is Hillary Hendershot. Hillary is a financial planner. She is a dynamo. She has her own podcast called Profit Boss Radio. She's done a TED Talk. Her whole thing is about helping you remove any kind of blocks around money and helping people to really be financially independent and successful. And she's she's really breaking ground on her show, Profit Boss Radio. Every single week, she's having frank conversations with women who have been able to succeed. And despite whatever circumstances might have been in their way, they just figure out how to get around those hurdles. And her TED Talk had a lot to do with the language that we use around money and how that actually affects the way we we treat money, the way we think about it. And I think this is so critical because I do feel like money is such a burdened kind of a word. And I feel like people have a lot of baggage around it. I have I have literally sat down with people who have tears in their eyes when I actually ask them why is it so hard for them to consider being paid for what they love or con- to consider charging more, let's say, for whatever it is. And there's just something tied to our self-worth and there's also something tied to whatever was modeled for us. And so in some of our homes growing up, Money was something that really caused a lot of pain and stress. And we were told that money was like the root of all evil. And money was, you know, if if people had money, maybe that made them less, you know, kind. And there's just a lot of baggage around it. And we need to really look at that under a microscope because if we want to have financial independence and, and we want to be able to create more freedom in our lives to do the things that we love, then money is a necessity and we have to... We have to make friends with that and we have to learn how to receive it and how to not have any qualms about that. And so I'm excited to have Hillary here today. I'm excited to dive in and talk to her and hear what she has to say. She's got a ton of wisdom and she has so much passion and enthusiasm. You're going to love her. So without further ado, let's bring her on. Hi, Hillary. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited, Kathy. Thanks for having me. No, this is going to be super fun. So I love my audience and I know that they're going to get a kick out of this because we've talked about lots of different things. You know, we've talked about strategy. We've talked about mindset. We haven't actually talked a lot about money. Um, I mentioned once a few episodes back about sort of the hurdle in terms of money mindset and how sometimes people actually like they don't realize it, but they're sort of like anti-money. Um, the thing is, though, we really shouldn't be anti-money because money is a um, an absolute need if we want to have the freedom to do what we want to do with our time. So I'm excited to talk to you. And you uh, you have your own show called Profit Boss. And you have a lot that you can tell us since you are also uh, been in this world helping people advise them with their finances for a while. So I have a lot of stuff I want to ask you. But first, I want you to just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your own story. Sure. So I got started in the field of financial planning in my early 20s. My father was a a fiduciary financial advisor. But honestly, Kathy, I was really bored by it. I thought all the financial advisors I met were (laughs) um, sort of shoulder to shoulder with my father. They were, frankly, old white men, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with being an old white man. I just didn't relate to them. And you're not old. You're not a man. (laughs) Exactly. And I, and they all had so much gravitas, right? And it was, it produced a lot of insecurity in me. I'm thinking who would ever do business with me when they can do business with them? Kind of fast forward a few years. And I actually, interestingly, even though I have a degree in economics and I was a certified financial planner, kind of found myself in this position where I really wasn't getting ahead financially from my own personal financial perspective. In fact, I was a major overspender. I had tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt. And during the financial crisis, 
things really came to a head for me to the point where I actually lost a condo. I, I owned a piece of real estate. I, I paid $400,000 for a one bedroom condo in San Jose. And in about a year, that condo was worth $200,000, uh, mm. which is a terrible position to be in if you have more mortgage than house. <laughs> yeah, no and, good. and so I kind of had to wipe the financial slate clean for myself. Oh, and yeah. I had to really come clean uh, publicly, I had to. I, I, I mean, I just said to myself, "Look, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to start doing the opposite of it because I'm done with the misery and suffering." And it was, it's very emotional to not have enough money and to make that mean that there's something wrong with you, that you're not a valuable part of society, right? And that's those are the things that yeah. were going through my head. And so I just said, "I'm I'm done with this. I'm going to figure this money thing out. And if I can figure this out for myself." I bet I can help other people. I bet there are other yeah. people out there who um who have money troubles of their own. And not all, I'm not only speaking to overspenders, right? There's lots of different mm, destructive money mindsets. You you just mentioned one of them that money is bad. If you think money mm-hmm. is bad, you're going to struggle with money your whole life. Yeah. Um so I was able to pay off the debt, uh How rebuild did you turn it all around. So what I discovered is that we all have some strongly held beliefs about money. Uh, and there are a lot of money coaches and teachers who talk about money blocks. And when they talk about them, sometimes I feel like they describe them as sort of a minefield. So you have a money block. You, it might be in random places in your life or in your mind or in your financial life. But I actually believe that you have a formative belief about money. I trademarked a term called your money operating system. So you have an operating mm-hmm. system for money the same way the computer has an operating system. And that all of your other money blocks mm-hmm. ensue from that one core money belief. In my opinion, one of the most popular money operating systems is there's never enough money. Now... Mm. Interestingly, and this is where it starts getting a little complex, is if you believe there's never enough money, you'll either be an under earner or an overspender. So a lot of people have high income, six figures, $200,000 a year, but they spend it all and they can't figure out why. And it's because if you believe there's never enough money, you have got to get money out of your ecosystem. You have to get it out of your bank accounts so that you will experience there not being enough money. You that sort of, is crazy. Isn't oh that crazy? <laughs> yeah. And that's what I was doing. And I had over $100,000 of income back in the day. And I always spent like 110. I mean, it was crazy. Okay, so you're in your early 30s when that happened. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that everything that you said, which I want to just pause for a second and comment on, because you said things about how it made you feel like you weren't a valuable member of society. You weren't, you know, it was such a, like a humiliating experience. And that is how people feel. Like, no one wants to talk about this stuff because we want to like, I know how I am. Like, I just want to sort of like, earn as much as I can, do as much as I can, but I don't actually ever want to make a budget or look what's in the bank account or sort of balance things. It just makes me really uncomfortable and stressed out. Yeah. But these are thoughts that people have when those things happen and no one would want to talk about it. But when we sort of put things out there and we stop having shame around it, then we can actually address the situation and we can correct things and we can take charge of things. Yeah. But everything you're saying has to be brought into the light so that we can take more of a powerful position So how did you correct that? And then we're going to get into all the stuff that you know now and how you can teach us how to do it too. But how did you wind up correcting that? So what worked for me was a combination of mindset reset and a dramatic alteration in how I actually interacted with money. So uh, in in the beginning, I and, and this is the way for people when they have to turn things around, I, I had to tighten the belt so much that it almost hurt, right? I mean, mm. I, I put myself on a very, very strict spending plan. And I created a system of multiple accounts so that I had one checking account with one debit card attached to it. I, I cut up all the credit cards went away, right? I did not allow myself to touch a credit card for years. Uh, and I have an 800 FICO score now. I just got a $1.2 million mortgage and we've got, I've got maybe five credit cards in my, in my wallet. So I, at this point things have shifted, but, um, but at that time, you know, I maybe put $750 or something into a checking account every two weeks. 
place. And that was, if I was going to spend money, that was the account that it came from. And that was the way I figured out how to know it because I had to get, you know, I had to pay the credit cards off. I then had to start saving, you know, money for my future. I needed to save for my next car, by the way, that's a huge mistake that some people make is they don't save for the next car and then they need a new car and it's an emergency. Now I have to take out debt. Right. Um, so I started saving 500 bucks a month for my next car. And if I was in a restaurant or buying clothes or buying coffee or going to the movies, the money came out of that one checking account. I call that today's fun. I literally name my checking accounts. Yesterday's promises, today's fun, and tomorrow's dreams. Isn't that silly? Um, <laughs> no, uh, but it totally it makes, works. It makes sense to you. Yeah. <laughs> like this is what you could spend today. This is for tomorrow and this is for yesterday. Okay. Exactly. So, so I put myself on that kind of plan, figured out what my overhead was that goes into yesterday's promises and then just made today's fun work. And, you know, there were weeks where, you know, if I spent four or 500 bucks in the first week, well, now I don't have much money left for the next week uh, and I have to make it work. I just have to get through until the next payday. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there were times, I mean, I literally asked people to buy me lunch sometimes, or I would eat canned food. And I mean, I know that that sounds bad and like low quality of life, but my goodness, I was making it work financially and I had to figure it out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't lose weight or I wasn't, you know, malnutritioned. I was fine. I was just figuring it out. And I had to start to surround myself with people who were financially successful. And I needed to reset this belief that there was never enough money. I started creating income goals for myself. And when you tighten the belt and you leave money in your bank accounts, for people who think there's never enough money, when you go into your bank account, you log in and there's more money than you thought there was going to be, it's like this huge cognitive dissonance, right? Because yeah. you're used to the, you used to that being a, an event that causes suffering, stomach aches, right? Avoidance. Yeah. Um, but when I think there's going to be $2,000 in the account and I open it up and there's 3000 it's like... Whoa, sometimes there is enough money, Kathy, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and so mindset shifts are not just conceptual. You have the opportunity in, in the world to create environments that conflict with your strongly held limiting beliefs. And then when you know your mind can't hold conflicting information for very long, right? You, you believe there's never enough money, but there's more money than you thought there was going to be in your bank account and you don't spend it. That starts to really shift what you already think and believe that's powerful I think so (laughs) yeah so what so what happened so how many months of this went by or a year of this how long till you were really riding the ship and you were on the other side so I got myself back up to you know like $150,000 of income I started renting a place and I mean, I remember little milestones like paying cash for my next car. That was huge. I remember paying off the credit card debt. I remember paying off the home equity line that I had defaulted on. I, you know, I remember when my retirement savings got to $100,000. It, it wasn't like a day. It wasn't a... Right. It happened over time, gradually. Yeah. And now, just give us a snapshot of where you are now, since you've been so open anyway. Where are you now? You've already told us you have a $1.2 million mortgage. So clearly you're you're back on track when it comes to a lot. And, and you're probably Clearly I have a, a high mortgage payment. <laughs> yeah. That, you're like, that's all that means is there's a high mortgage yeah, payment. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I live in San Jose. We have a nice house. It's a nice house, but it's 1.75 or something like that. Yeah. And I run a wealth management firm and give it's a recurring revenue model, easy, easily sellable business. It's probably worth 1.5 million at this point. Um, mm-hmm. My husband and I probably have a joint net worth of about four and a half million dollars. I got married wow. in 2013. And at this point, you know, last year we had two million dollars of personal income. So, yeah, things look a lot look different. At you, Hillary. <laughs> yeah. Doing it. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you did an episode with Amy Muborn and it was about steps to leave your nine to five job. Hmm. But this is so important to our audience because we are talking all the time about what is a side hustle and how can you be building this on the side? And then when is it time to jump ship and do it full time? And how do you create that? How do you build an infrastructure over time with your side hustle so that you can eventually leave your nine to five? What do you have to say about that? 
So I don't want someone who loves photography to go into business as a solo photographer. I want that person to create a system that eventually other people can manifest for them. So let me give you an example. In my business, when I went out on my own in 2014, I was the only advisor on the team. So if I went on vacation, there was no one to answer the emails, talk Mm. to new prospective clients. Um, Now my business isn't that intense or dramatic, right? There there are no emergencies typically in my business. So I was able to go out on vacation, but now, now I have an associate advisor on my team and that person is learning how I do business and my clients experience her as an extension of me. Now I'm free to not be in the office. So I like to envision businesses as as systems. I'm sure you've read the entrepreneurial myth. Um, no. Tell oh, me about it. He talks about the difference between the tactician and the entrepreneur. And the mm-hmm. photographer example is a perfect one. So people go out into business with great intentions because they have this thing that they do that they love. And what they've done is they've taken their hobby and made it their work. And that's all fine and good, except n- the next thing they discover is that unless they're doing it, they can't make money. If they're the only one offering the service in their business, now they're sort of stuck and they've sort of kind yeah. of traded oh, yeah. one evil for another. So right. So that's the e-myth. I made okay. my employees read that book. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. So creating systems. So let's keep going with that. So what else? What else would you say to unpack? How do you eventually leave your nine to five to go do the thing you really want to do? One thing you're saying is create a system. Yeah. Tell I mean, me more envision about it in the beginning. I mean, certainly you need to start by taking money. So, you know, probably don't quit your day job in the beginning, probably start in the evenings and the weekends. And you want to be going and getting paid for what you're doing, whatever it is that you, Mm -hmm. let's say it's personal styling, right? You want to be on the weekends in the working with clients and figuring out what people want and refining your service so that it becomes easier and easier to Mm -hmm. get paid for what you want to do. And then, you know, you can kind of figure out how much money you need in the bank to, to, and you know, I'm always focused on kind of the financial aspect of things, but start lean. Uh, you know, maybe your employer will let you go half time, right? Hmm. I, I often see like posts online and people say, I just quit my day job, right? And, yeah, and everyone yeah. clicks like, and I think, well, I hope you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and for those of you who hate your day job and... I know you can sort of rally behind people who make the leap, but I encourage you to think of it as a slow transition out. <laughs> yeah. And wh- when do you think you're ready to go? What do you think you should have in the bank or what might be a good rule of thumb, like six months of what you need to live on in order to go ahead? Or what do you think? Well, that's the rule of thumb when you have a job. I'm, I might say a year. Okay. You know, or just the the ability to do that. Like maybe your home equity line could count as part of that. It depends on yeah. what pieces are present in that individual's life. And as far as I want to go back to the first thing you said, because we didn't exactly connect the dots, even though it's such an important point that you made. If you're the photographer and you're saying, don't become the photographer who's going to quit their job only to have to be the one shooting every single shoot. How do you create this system? What do you mean by that? I know exactly what you mean by that because in my business, there's lots of different people who work with me. I have a very, I have, I have a nice sized team. So I have people who work with me on the podcast and I have people who work with me in my music business and I have people who work with me on writing my book and I have people who work with me to help me teach these online classes that I do. And so I don't need to be the only person to handle every single step of the business. And that makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying. And everything is very scalable in that way because there is a system to it and some of it is automated and some of it is just, um, you know, on different people's shoulders so that the del- you know, we've delegated things. But if I, if I had never heard that, how can you connect the dots? What does that look like? How, what do you mean then about the photographer? Give me that as an example. So if I'm not going to be the photographer who shoots every wedding, what should it look like? Well, let me use a cake pop business as an example. Ooh. Okay. Cake so pops. you're making cake pops and you want to have a particular thing that people fall in love with about your cake pops, whether it's the decor or the color of the stick or the shape yeah. of the cake. You want a signature thing to be your thing. Right. And once you figure out what that is, you can systematize it. And what I mean is document how to make them. 
right? How to market them? How are you getting people into your shop? What's your advertising system? What works better? What have you learned doesn't work? And then mm-hmm. start to bring in team members. Now, look, you've got to be making good money, right? You're not going to leave your job you know, if cake pops isn't a profitable opportunity. Um, So now you've got a little bit of excess income and you can afford to bring someone in part-time at first, someone who wants to learn the business. And now you can teach them your systems and begin to delegate parts of the work that you do. And maybe you're going to make, maybe you've made so much money in cake pops, you can hire someone to do marketing for you, right? And that's, that's someone who is going to be a contractor who's going to bring their special, specialized knowledge to your business. And so in that way, expanding your business, but the systems I'm talking about that are documentable are the things that you do over and over and over again in your business that make money. Ultimately, a business is nothing but a set of systems that consistently produce profit. And those systems can be documented. I love it. It's working on your business more than you're working in it. Yes. Um, It's 2018. It's a new year. What do you think, as we're wanting to take on new habits for this new year, what might be one thing that might be important to think about if we want to have a different result this year when it comes to money? and to to be in a more financially uh, independent place this year? The one thing I would recommend to everyone is that you automate your finances. The core of all financial success is spending less than you make. And you've got to know how much you spend on overhead expenses each month to know everything, to know how much you need to save, to know how much else you can spend on discretionary things. So I teach that. There's an episode of my podcast called Automate Your Financial Freedom. You can check that out. Um, but I've got plenty of resources and I've got plenty of resources on my website about automating and that's at hillaryhendershot.com. And automating means when you figure out sort of like how much you can put in like your fun account, how much you can put in your account that you need to save for bills, but just really going through things so that you, you, you have that information at your fingertips and then it's all sort of like lined up for you. You're not guessing, you're not going through the month blind. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So money comes into your ecosystem and it gets distributed automatically through a series of account transfers that you've previously set up. And the only thing you have to do, so literally your next car is getting saved for on an automatic basis every month. And the only thing you have to do is not spend more than the money in your today's fund account in order to have the entire plan work. And that is when I I talk to people, the most common thing people say to me is, I just wish someone would go into my bank accounts and tell me how much I can spend. Right. And so, cause money is like messy. And if you put it all in one pool and, and it sounds like you're you're having some of this go on in your life, but there's like this truism in life. A task takes as long as the time you give to it. We'll probably yeah. spend all the money in a bank account. Like things increase to take up the size that we give them. So you've got to right size your spending and give your give your dollars each a oh, job. That's such a such a clear way to look at it and that's such good advice okay so everyone needs to write that down and you said you you did a whole episode on that so we can find out more about it what's the episode called it is episode 84 of profit boss radio uh-huh. it's called automate your financial freedom perfect okay yeah so everyone needs to check that out i know that one of the things that you know you're famous for and you do a lot of speaking you talk about the seven steps to wealth i, I want to know if you can tell us what those seven steps are sure So essentially, I think people get confused about what's behind wealth, that they forget that making money is a very different skill than saving and preserving it. So a lot of people have a lot of money coming in. They're confused, overwhelmed by it. Maybe they spend too much. We all know, if you don't know someone personally who made a fortune and lost it, you've heard stories of them, right? Oh, God, yeah. My husband said, I just want to say, my husband says I spend money like MC Hammer. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, whatever you have. It's gone. And it's gone. He's like, you make a little money? He's like, yeah. He's like, Kath, you're doing great. That's not the problem. He's like, the problem is you do better and better. And you're like, let's go to the mall. I got to buy some new shoes. And it's like, I don't buy diamonds and I don't buy Louis Vuitton bags. I don't. But it's like all the trips to Target that add up or like you're online and you add four other items that you don't need. That's the problem. That's where I need to learn. So, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> like you said, there's a difference between earning money and then the other part about saving it. Exactly. And so my assertion is that if you embody these principles, if you keep them alive and well in your life, that your financial yeah. success is a foregone conclusion. So let's talk about what they actually are. Ooh, so, good. okay. Like first that. step is decide. This is really the place, in my opinion, Kathy, most people never get through steps one and two. So decide is the first step. When I find people, if you get real about what you're really up to in your financial life, for the vast majority of people are not following the basic principles of wealth. There's no magic. You have to spend less than you make, right? Um, or, or they're up to, um, for example, in the, in, a past, in the past life, the other thing we haven't talked about is how I thought if I had the emblems of wealth that people would think I was successful. So I had a convertible BMW that I couldn't afford mm-hmm. to put gas in, right? Oh, right. Um, so, <laughs> so the first step is to really make that decision that in your financial life, what you're up to is building and preserving wealth. It, it really is about mindset, by the way. Um, all the research we have says that kind of the difference between wealthy people and people who are broke is that wealthy people take responsibility for their results rather than being victims of the world and uh, and helpless. Mm. And So, okay, That's second nice. step is plan. Uh, you really need a wealth plan. You got to know the numbers. So I really like my system of automation. I teach it on my podcast, Profit Boss Radio, often because it's it's a bulletproof way to make sure that your money flows where you need it to go. So each dollar in your life should have a job and you want to put it in the right account mm. so that it goes there. I think a lot of people really, they start budgets and well-meaning, but it becomes this huge task to do. And if you get behind, you now have to go catch up for months and months and months of spending and tracking and categorizing before you can start again. And automating your finances is a total substitute for that. Planning also includes things like saving in your IRA, saving in your Roth. uh, If you're a self-employed, saving in your SEP IRA, like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Third step is speak. You really have to master your internal programming about money. You have to deal with how you talk about money. So for you, and you've, you've been honest in this conversation, so I'll just use you as an example. There's something that you're saying to yourself when you go to log in, talk about money or log into your bank, because you, you've described the stomach ache, the, the stress and anxiety. And it's that whatever that conversation is, is, is holding you back. I mean, imagine how it would feel to feel joyful and grateful when you think about money, right? That would would be yeah. a different version of reality for you. So yeah. So I I have these little templates that I use for people to really look at what is your money operating system? Where did that come from? And what are the actions, behaviors, and conversations that are a result of it? And then once mm-hmm. you've got it all on paper, you can say, okay, I'd like to change that. Oh, this stuff is so important because it, what's normally happening, and this, this has to do with every area of our life, is like we're, our thoughts are what dictate our actions. And so what we do is we just like have these behaviors and we get frustrated and we keep going in these same loops as opposed to stopping and going, wait, what's behind the the action? And and how do I then reprocess the reprogram that so I take a different action? And now I have to actually commit to these different actions. And these are the conversations that are so uncomfortable, except that it's really working smarter than just going through the same thing over and over and over again without stopping and doing this really in, in important reflective work. And I'm so glad that we're, we're discussing it and you're helping us to change that conversation right now. So thank you for, for, for talking about it this way. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I ask the people that I work with in my coaching programs to completely remove from their vocabulary is the phrase, I can't afford that. So, and that's just an example of how we really need to alter our dialogue about money. Um, Mm. And I say to people, just, you know, get real. If you're not going to buy it, just say, I'm not going to put that in my spending plan. And if you want it and the money isn't in your bank account right now, then at least give yourself the power of saying, empower yourself to say, well, I'm going to go figure out how to afford that. I'm going to go get the money. I'm going to figure out how to have that in my life. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just an example of, of things that people say that I think are knee jerk and that limit them financially. Oh, well, there's a lot of things that people say, and I want to get to that later, but I have have a big one that comes to mind. Keep keep going. Okay. The fourth step is ask. Okay. This is a conceptual step, 
but I want you to take on making bigger and bigger requests of the world. And this is going to look different based on where you are in life. You know, for you and me, we might have specific and measurable business goals. For someone who's a salaried employee, maybe you want to say to someone who's in the upper divisions of your company, you know, how can I double my income? How can I, how can I bring in more money? You want to also be someone who negotiates to your own benefit. So, um, you know, you won't be successful every time, but making the effort to ask makes all the difference. Uh, One of the things I teach on my podcast is something that people don't realize. If you ask another human being for something, they're something like 70% more likely to give it to you if you simply give them a reason. So uh, there's a challenge that Tim Ferriss, I think, put out on his podcast that I loved. And he said, you should go into Starbucks and ask for a 15% discount on on your coffee. And he said, 90% of people won't even do this because we're afraid to ask. (laughs) And so I told people on my podcast, go into Starbucks and say, can I have a 15% discount because X, right? Because it's my birthday, because I'm saving money, right? Whatever that is. And um, more often than not, they give it to you. The, yep, I bet they do. <laughs> so the fifth step is earn. Uh, really taking inspired action to bring income and assets into your financial ecosystem. One thing I want to point out here is that some people get stuck in the thinking that the financial game is a zero-sum game. So if I pay you for something, you might think, I now don't have that money, right? So you're taking it from me. So there's guilt, especially for women as entrepreneurs and business owners. People get to feeling bad about charging money. And, you know, when you've done a voluntary exchange, you've created value. If I pay you money, it's because I value what you're giving me more than those dollars. (laughs) Um, And so there's an infinite amount of money out there. So the sixth step is invest. You really do have to use... In my opinion, this is kind of what I do for a living, right? So use evidence-based methods to grow your wealth and compound your earnings. That um, what, what One of the things we know about women is that we have a bunch of money in our savings accounts and we are responsible more and more for the financial day-to-day decisions of the family. But when you take a look at what our money is in, more often than not, it's in cash. And what that means mm. is it's losing value over time. We're afraid right. of the stock market and we're because we think we don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to, we mm-hmm. don't trust ourselves to make decisions. But when you look at a woman, how she normally invests versus a man who's more, men tend to suffer from overconfidence in in the area of stock market investing. That's documented. I didn't make that up. Um, okay. But men tend to buy and sell more, which tends, turns out to be bad. Women, because we're afraid, will just buy whatever and hold on to it. And that turns out to be a better investing strategy, interestingly yeah. enough. That's interesting. And then the seventh step is protect. You have got to protect your wealth. You can't gamble with what you can't afford to lose. So things like life insurance, um, you know, auto insurance, home and renter's insurance, an umbrella policy, uh, also a revocable living trust. Think these estate planning uh, techniques that sound sophisticated, but really, truly anyone who owns a piece of real estate or has a child should have some kind of estate plan. I mean, for example, I, I always get these questions. Should I use my 401k to start a business? And I mean, inside this, this principle of wealth, the protect principle, I say, you know, if you have to ask, the answer is probably no. Yeah. You know, and so okay. it's, it's, it's about honoring what you have, stewarding what you have, and while all the while going out to create more. So those are the right. seven steps to wealth. Okay. Well, that was amazing. Uh, so in, chock full of good, good things to think about and to do. I want to go to something else. Um, you talked before, we, we mentioned it several times already. It's been sort of like this thread running through this whole discussion. We talked about those money blocks. And yeah. on your podcast, which is fantastic, Profit Boss, you've had a few different episodes. One was on money blocks, a whole episode. Another one was on rewiring your mind. Mm-hmm. And I want you to tell me right now a little bit more about that because this is the first thing that you said you had to do. You said, I did two things. First, I had to change my the way I thought about it. And then I had to change the way I actually handled money. How do we rewire these beliefs? What are these big ones? I'll tell you one that I hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Money is the root of all evil. I hate money. That is actually on my list of most popular money operating systems. Yeah. 
And you know what? I had a I had a sit down conversation with someone I won't say who, and he almost had tears in his eyes. And he's like, you know, he's a he's a grown adult guy. And we were having a conversation. I was trying to give him some insight on an idea I had for him and how he could grow his business. And he kept coming up with all this pushback and all this resistance. And finally, he kind of comes clean and he has this like moment. And he says to me, you know, when I was growing up, my dad is a social worker and he has like a bleeding heart. And my mom also, you know, always volunteers and we never had enough. And my parents, because they're such do-gooders, there was always this, you know, there was so much stress in the house around money, but they also had a lot of resistance to people who had money. And I grew up thinking that people with money were not really very nice and money itself was kind of evil and it made people evil. And he said, I have something inside me where I don't really want to charge people for things. I don't really want to have a lot. I feel like I have to justify it if I do have or if I do charge. And I'm like, oh my God, dude, you're swimming in all this negativity. There's This is why you're yeah. barely making ends meet, you know? He hated money. He felt like money was like, had equal signs to like being a terrible person. Like if you have money, you're not nice. You clearly don't care about other people. You can't be a good person. And money causes all the stress. Money is the reason that people have issues. So therefore, I don't like money. Mm-hmm. How do you rewire your brain, Hillary? How do you get over that money block? Okay, so this money operating system that strongly held belief is so pernicious and so destructive and so incorrect (laughs) and that really is the good news for people who are stuck with this one because money is a blank slate money has no meaning money is just a conversation like cash isn't money money is a hundred percent conceptual money doesn't even exist we made it up and now we're all crazy right. about it, right? So that's uh, true. That's so weird when you say it, though. It's like, yeah, it's paper that we decided had value. But no, value. that's not paper. You can't buy a cocktail with a $5 bill on a commercial airliner. They don't take cash. Cash is not money, <laughs> yeah. right? It's Cash is something that represents money um, and, and is used less and less, right? And your credit card doesn't have money in it. There, money doesn't exist in reality. You can never see, touch, taste or feel money. And and that just blows people away, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we've made up all these superstitions about money and money is evil is a particularly bad one. Um, so I'm actually, I don't usually do this in interviews, but I'm actually going to read a quote and you probably have heard it before and I am answering your question. And this quote is, it's usually attributed to a man named Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And, but, I, but I know from researching it. Say that, it again 10 times. Say it no, again. Keep no. going. <laughs> but he actually didn't say it, but I'm going to read. So we don't know who said it, but I'm going to read it. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Now, Mm. that is is the reason the first principle of wealth is to decide. Most people you meet who are suffering financially have not decided, have not committed, right? And so they can't see the steps that they need to take in order to get out of it. You're asking me, how do people mm-hmm. transform their financial beliefs, their, mon- their money operating systems? You have to decide first. I can't help you until you do, right? Because you won't see it. You sound like a woman who's had tremendous success in her life. And I imagine each of those endeavors that you've taken on, the songwriting and then the podcast, and I I bet there's a host of wins that I don't even know about. But there's a moment you decide that you're going to do it, or at least that you're going to research it. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing things about, in this case, podcasting everywhere. You see resources. You meet new podcasters. You find new podcasts that you love, right? Because you're looking for them. It, it's now in your view. And this is the universe lining up to give you what you say you want. We live in a friendly universe. The universe wants you to be happy, fulfilled, and have everything you want, right? Mm, So your friend 
it sounds like he is just has just discovered this wiring problem, right? That he hasn't been looking for financial success. He hasn't been playing the game called I'm going to be financially independent one day. He's not playing that game, right? He's playing a different game in his money life. And so that's where I would start with him in coaching is what are you willing to admit you've been doing up to now? And what do you choose or declare that you're doing in the future? It's amazing that you're saying this because I never thought about it in that such a clear way, but I am so committed. And my husband always says to me, he goes, you have the will of a small country. He goes, when you, he goes, it's, he goes, it scares the daylights out of me. He goes, because you get this look in your eye. He goes, when you're going to do something and then you just do anything and everything it takes to get to the finish line. You commit to the finish line no matter what. Yes. And I've met people in my life who either have that or they don't. And you are so right. I've never boiled it down to that. But I do feel like when you commit, it's sort of saying to yourself, what I have is the certainty of the commitment, which means I don't know a lot of the unknowns. But what I do know is I will commit until I get there. I will figure it out. I will be resourceful and I will get to the end no matter what. And then you're right. You commit with all this enthusiasm and all this passion and all this dedication and you start taking action, massive action, and doors start to open that you would never have thought before and opportunities click and then your consistency and your commitment continues to catch up with all these opportunities and you get better and better at what you're doing and absolutely there you go. And there is something about the commitment and I think everyone can do that. That's the thing and there aren't any excuses because it's if it's really that, then that's something we all have a lot more control over than we think. Exactly. So that's really powerful. That's the good news. <laughs> that is really good news. Yeah. And you've definitely done that in your life. And that's, that's an incredible insight to really boil it down to that commitment and that decision to commit. Yes. And when I meet people, people talk to me about their money a lot, right? And I can get pretty oh, yeah. clear whether they've decided or not. <laughs> and if someone's in a place where they haven't decided, this is why people get so frustrated. Oh, how come I'm interested in building our retirement savings, but my husband, I can't get him on board. He won't deal with the money. He won't help. He won't support. He won't partner with me. If someone isn't in that place, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> there's absolutely nothing you can do because he has to decide, right? And so when, when I can tell that someone hasn't decided, I kind of back away. I don't, I, first of all, I never coach. I never offer them any advice because it's not, they're not asking for it. Um, they're not ready yet. Can you, can you finish the sentence? Decide to what? So decide to be financially healthy, decide to achieve financial freedom, decide to save $3 million, decide to get out of debt, decide to earn a quarter million dollars a year, whatever that is for you. And there's something that, ha there's a lot of shame that comes up. I remember seeing an episode of Oprah years ago and she had a stage full of women and she had people have this like, they had like a little marker and like a, a whiteboard and she had each of them write on this little whiteboard that had like a personal size one. She said, I want you to write how much money you would love to earn. And each person wrote a number. And then she said, now I want you to turn it and show it to the audience, but the people sitting next to you can't see it, but just the audience will see each of your number, whatever you wrote down. Somebody wrote $75,000, somebody wrote $200,000, somebody wrote a million dollars. And then she talked to each person one by one. And she said, do you realize that you wrote $75,000? Why didn't you write more? And the person would have tears in their eyes. Well, I don't think I, I mean, $75,000 would be plenty. It's enough. I don't need more than that. You know, but why not? Well, I can't conceptualize making more than that. And there has to do, that has to do a lot with self-worth and shame and what you feel money really signifies. And here's Oprah saying to these women, she goes, I make a, a gajillion dollars. And she goes, you know how I look at it? She goes, it's not even mine. I look at it like every day, she goes, my spiritual practices, I ask the world, I ask God, I ask the universe to help, help me be in service. And then whatever money comes into my hands, it's like I, I get a chance to, to reallocate that to other people, to other projects. So I don't have to have shame around it because to me, it's all this flow. It comes in here and then I put it back out and I just get to sort of help guide this money that's not even really mine. And I don't have any problems around, you know, receiving it. But it was fascinating. It's fascinating how people limit and they say to me all the time, well, I, I'll, I'll say to them, how much money do you want to make? And right away, there's like this tension and they go, well, I mean, 
look, I don't need that much. I'm just, I'm not asking for that much. I just want to make $100,000. I just want to make two, you know, how about not six million? Right, exactly. Six million, I don't need that. It's like, what's wrong with it? Is it bad? Is it spoiled? Does it make you a bad person? How, how come you wouldn't want $6 million? Because that's a really helpful amount of money. It's more helpful than 200000 And if what you're saying is true, then it's the same kind of work mentally that you have to cross in terms of a threshold in your, in your mind. And then maybe the results are going to be the same results. So it's about deciding first which one. So why not pick the bigger one? What, what is it about it? Why so much shame around making a lot of money? Why? So each of those people who wrote on the whiteboards that Oprah was interviewing comes from a different background. So there's not one answer to that question. But we as a society, in the same way we agree that thinner is better than fatter, we've agreed that richer is more valuable than poor, right? So if you have money, there's value there. If you're poor, there is a shame about that. But conversely, there's also this uh, strongly held belief that poor goes with noble, goes with virtuous, that I mean, the starving artists, right? We revere starving artists. Oh, I can't take it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's terrible, right? I don't want artists to starve. No, it's not helpful. <laughs> of course, know. nobody should be starving. And you know, somebody said, somebody set me straight recently and somebody said to me, you realize if you have more money, you can be more generous, right? And I was like, well, that's not true. There's poor people who are generous. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's poor people who are generous. That's absolutely true. That'd be ridiculous to say that they're not. But she goes, when you think about it, if you don't have to worry about how you're going to make $12 today just to get lunch, you have more energy to spend on helping somebody else or on putting your time into something that you really want to do, which hopefully is going to make you a happier you, which is going to give more to the world. And then you might be making more money, which means you might be able to help your sister or help your cousin or help somebody else start a business. And think of all the buildings in the world that have names on them because people started a community center or people dedicated a park to a town. She goes... While, while it's true that poor people are generous, it's also true that rich people are really generous. And to say that rich people are mean, she goes, that makes no sense. Because you can definitely be generous when you don't have to suffer through the day just to pay the bills. And it's, such a, it's something we really don't talk about, do we? I mean, there's such a stigma on it. And people get, you know, people, people make fun of people who have money. You know, they'll talk about them. They'll become the, the subject of conversation. Oh, did you see so-and-so? She's such a this. She's such a that. You know, it's like... That's yeah, that doesn't great. happen in my world. <laughs> so, so I I know that it happens out there, but you know, my clients are millionaires and multimillionaires, and I definitely don't. And they're probably about mostly them. very nice people. <laughs> and you know, a lot of the really wealthy people I know actually are very understated, and they don't have to like show it off. They just live a nice life. Now, let's go back to something that's on point for this audience, and it has to do somewhat with what we just talked about in terms of what you believe you you deserve and what you can charge. You did a whole episode on freelancers and charging for your work. Let's talk about that because that's something that comes up for, you know, for my listeners. H- how do you go about putting a price on your art, putting a price on your yoga teaching, putting a price on the service or on the thing that you create? That isn't an easy thing to do. It's difficult when it gets to that part of the conversation you have to charge. Tell us what, what some of your insight is around that. Let me start by just saying that There are some of you listening who right now can't imagine feeling good about stating a a four or five or six figure price. And I just promise you, you can get there if you, it takes time and and how much time it takes is different for each person, but you can get there. Um, I recommend that you start by figuring out how much money you need to make to live happily. So you and your partner or just you alone can look at your family finances, your cost of living and you can determine, okay, I may be making $150,000 a year in my job, but really I can make $100,000, you know, this year and, um, and we'll pay our bills and we'll still be, you know, I won't be going to credit card debt. And so I'm setting my income minimum at, at $100,000 and now mm-hmm. figure out how many of those things, those paintings or cake pops or, or framed photographs or Etsy jewelry pieces you can make like figure out how long it takes you to make those things and then divide the $100,000 by 12 months and additionally four weeks and figure out what you need to make in a week and in a day in order to have it work. Smart. 
That's so easy. That makes sense. Yeah. Simple. Rather than trying to arbitrarily put some value on a thing that doesn't ha- doesn't have value inside it, it only creates value in the exchange. When you sell it to me, and I say, Kathy, that's the most beautiful necklace I've ever seen. I would gladly pay a hundred dollars for that. Yeah. Right. It's made up. It's really good. I feel like we've talked about so many important things and this conversation has been chock full of like, I mean, it hits you in your solar plexus. I feel like that's that's when you know you're having a good conversation, when it gets you a little uncomfortable and then actually there's a, there's a payoff, you know, and I feel like we've had, I've had that feeling as we're talking. It's like this gets uncomfortable because this is a topic that's difficult to, you know, people say, don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics, don't talk about money, but these are important conversations to have. And I feel like you've done a lot to help us have more energy around it and to not be so overwhelmed by it. Is there anything else that you want to share as we're closing? Anything else, anything we didn't cover, any advice, anything you want to leave the listeners with for right now? I want people to know that I firmly believe that anything is possible and that no matter where you are right now financially, if you, like I said, if you take on playing this game, you can evolve, transform, you can completely alter not only your experience of money, but your reality about money. Um, it does take focus, uh, but but literally anything is possible. I could tell 10 or 15 stories of financial turnaround right now that would blow your mind. And, you know, those stories can be yours. I feature them on my podcast, Profit Boss Radio. But my core message is is just that we can do it. It's time for us to do this for ourselves. The government isn't going to help. <laughs> government doesn't have any money to give you. The government gets its money from you. So it's time that we take care of ourselves financially, that taking care of yourself isn't selfish. It's actually honoring and re- respecting and loving you. And that's my mission. It's beautiful. And guys, you can find her at Profit Boss Radio. Great, great podcast. You know, you can already tell Hillary's just so down to earth and she's she's really a person who has so much that she wants to help you with and she knows what she's talking about and she she cares and she's cool. So I think it's like a great way to like, you know, it's like when you're going to take medicine, it's like, you know, to have a zucchini muffin instead of eating the straight up cold zucchini. I feel like she can give you guys nutrition, um, but in a way that's palatable and fun and, and yummy and and interesting. Well, Hillary, this was so great. I, I learned so much and I really really enjoyed the conversation tremendously. Thank you for being here. It's been a really generous um, hour. You've given us so much and uh, I'm sure people will be checking out your podcast and uh, I'm I'm excited to talk to you more and and just be buddies and and hopefully our paths will keep crossing. You are a fantastic podcaster, very articulate and great conversationalist. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Hillary. Okay, so that was really good stuff. Here are some takeaways. Number one, decide. Choose to change your relationship and beliefs about money. Number two, plan. Automate your finances and give each dollar a job. Number three, don't say I can't afford that. Say, I'll figure out how I can afford that. Number four, asking for something with a reason can make all the difference. Number five, envision your business as a documentable system that you can teach to someone else and expand. Number six, make a slow transition to quit your day job. Start lean. Number seven, money is a blank slate. Number eight, anyone can commit. Number nine, set your value. Then figure out what you have to produce in order to get there. It will take time, but you will get there. And number 10, no matter where you are financially, anything is possible. Thank you guys for listening to our show. So Hillary was talking about not being afraid to ask. So here's my big ask. If you love this show, if you find this show helpful at all, would you please share this show with a friend? If each one of you posted about the show on Instagram, referred a friend to the show, if each one of you had one person in your life start listening to the show, we would double our audience, which would be huge for us. I would be over the moon if you would do that. And to show you my appreciation, why don't you do a post about it on Instagram or do a post about it on Facebook or send an email to some people and then just take a screenshot, however you decided to share about the show and email it to me at hello at don't keep your day job or you can DM me the picture at my Instagram at C-A-T-H-Y dot H-E-L-L-E-R at Kathy dot Heller. But get the screenshot to me and I am going to raffle off a awesome prize to one special awesome listener who does this. I will raffle off an awesome prize and I will pick that person by Friday, February 23rd at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and I will post who the winner is on my Instagram at kathy.heller. You can check it out there. Please leave us an iTunes review if you haven't already. That also really, really helps our show. It helps our show get more visibility through the iTunes charts. 
You guys are the best. I love you. I hope you guys have an awesome week and I will talk to you next week. Special thanks to our executive producer, Tim Street, and producer, Emma Kikuchi. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. Winter trees are blooming. It felt like spring was.